Hello and welcome to the Spine Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And today we're going to continue our discussion on neuromodulation. Uh, we've already covered um, radio frequency as a way of modulating these nerves um, and talked a lot about dorsal column stimulation or the kind of the more traditional spinal cord stimulation uh, as an option. Today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, peripheral nerve or peripheral nerve field stimulation. Um, which obviously just by the name sounds different, right? Peripheral being something that is not uh, in the spine uh, and then kind of targeting either a specific nerve or a general area of pain and trying to figure out how we can best utilize uh, this technology uh, to be able to help a patient's uh, pain. Um, so Dr. K, why don't you kind of introduce this a little bit better than I did with a slightly more intelligent uh, way of talking about it. Um, and then we'll kind of, we'll transition over from your intro into kind of a little bit of the mechanisms and then talking about how we're seeing this used in uh, clinical practice as well as in some of the literature out there. It was a great introduction actually, but yeah. And, and like, as Dr. Alvarez was saying, I think the main thing we want to accomplish today is to introduce the concept of peripheral nerve stimulation. We'll talk a little bit about the mechanism of action, and then we'll talk about a couple of studies that we think had a significant influence uh, on the field. And <clears throat> yeah, in regards to peripheral nerve stimulation itself, the the idea of it, the and the push behind trying to optimize its utility for us, I think really came from the fact that we saw this uh, amazing potential in neurostimulation when we were doing traditional spinal cord stimulation and more recently uh, techniques including dorsal root ganglion stimulation. But with those therapies, there were, there were certain times where we were still struggling to capture certain pain processes, um, especially when we may be dealing with a more uh, focal problem, uh, for example, a, a, a painful peripheral mononeuropathy, um, or uh, something like chronic uh, nonspecific low back pain. Um, so areas that <coughs> we were uh, potentially in, in, cer in certain cases struggling to uh, address those areas with our traditional um, uh, neurostimulation targeting more the central uh, nervous system. Um, uh, that, I think that's where a lot of the uh, push behind trying to have this innovation in peripheral nerve stimulation came from. And then in addition, as we uh, are all all of us are always thinking about everything in medicine is risk and benefit. And <clears throat> although uh, uh, neurostimulation in the spinal cord and dorsal root ganglion stimulation, uh, although there's minimally invasive surgeries with relatively low risk compared to uh, some of the other treatment options that may be out there f for treating those, those processes, and uh, Dr. Hovis and myself use uh, neurostimulation all the time in terms of spinal cord stimulation and dorsal root ganglion stimulation, we feel very confident in the safety of that therapy. There's no denying that doing peripheral nerve stimulation, of course, uh, you're staying away uh, from the spinal cord and, uh, and those structures. So of course, there's gonna be an added benefit of uh, increased safety with, with that therapy as well. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a, a really interesting point to make, right? I mean, if we're staying away from the spinal column uh, at large, and we're mostly working in, you know, like I said, in the periphery, away from uh, the spinal cord, away from those large uh, nerve roots that that are so important um, and such such valuable structures for the for the uh, use of our limbs. Um, there is a, a difference in the level of safety with it. I mean, these are much safer 
um, by my account, would be much less invasive procedures uh, for patients because we're, we are staying outside of uh, the, the spinal canal. Um, and so it, it's, it is a nice uh, option to be able to have. And, and so, you know, essentially we're placing uh, one of the uh, electrical wires uh, next to or in the vicinity of the painful area, right? And so if it's, you know, a specific mononeuropathy, we want to be as close as we can uh, to that nerve. You know, I, I think uh, Dr. Corrales looked at up some studies and found that if we're within roughly seven centimeters or so, kind of depending on the study, um, and, you know, there are different ways of being able to analyze it. You know, you can uh, use uh, ultrasound to identify the nerves. You can use uh, the, uh, the portions of the radio frequency testing uh, to be able to uh, actually send a signal uh, to those nerves and make sure you're close to them. But, you know, if we're close to that per, uh, peripheral mononeuropathy, we feel like we can send signals to be able to uh, affect the way that uh, we're sensing the pain. Um, or if it is more of a, uh, a vague general area, placing a lead uh, or an electrical wire into that general area uh, and then using those pulses to be able to, to change the way that things are signaling in that area and hopefully making the pain much better, right? And so, you know, we kind of want, I, I think wanted to understand a little bit better some of the, the mechanisms of this because um, A, Dr. Gorelis is great about describing uh, mechanisms of action for us. And so I think at least if we understand a little bit of the mechanism of why um, sending some of these electrical impulses can be helpful, and then we can talk about some of the ways that we've seen this work and be, be effective for a lot of our patients. Yeah, and re so real quickly before we uh, jump into the mechanism of action, I just want to make one further comment in terms of uh, the safety, because as we stated, yes, you know, based on just thinking about the what we're doing to the body, but then you know the data as well. Uh, but applying that to the from the patient's perspective, I think you know when we talk to the patient about implanting a device in their spinal spinal cord, obviously we spend a lot of time with education and, and explain to them the risk and benefits, but that's still a difficult thing, I think, for a lot of patients uh, to um, really uh, move forward with at times versus this, uh, you know, talking about implanting something more in the periphery, I think, from a patient perspective, I think it's a lot easier for them to move forward with that, the idea of that type of treatment, too. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the specific devices that are used for this, but most of the devices do have uh, external pulse generators um, or so that you don't have to actually place the battery or implant the battery inside the patient. Um, which does, I think, change things from a patient perspective also. Uh, I, I would, I feel like the acceptance rate of like, oh, I don't have a battery implanted inside my body um, does, there, there is a difference there. I mean, obviously with some education, most patients are able to understand that this is a very, that uh, implanted pulse generator is a very safe option uh, for them, um, but it is still a much easier thing for patients to accept when it's not, the battery is not implanted inside. Yeah. So when we move forward now to talk about mechanism of action, I think it's good to review the mechanism of action uh, that we've come to understand in regards to uh, traditional uh, spinal cord stimulation, uh, um, uh, and I should, I should say more neurostimulation targeting the dorsal columns uh, uh, themselves. And we had a talk earlier uh, where we talked about mechanism of action. So just as a quick 
review for neurostimulation targeting the, uh, uh, the spinal cord itself, the dorsal columns of the spinal cord itself. Those mechanisms of action are going to include, uh, at this point in time, based on the research we have, include um, positive modulation of the wide dynamic range neurons, which we know are uh, gatekeepers of the pain signals coming from the periphery to the central nervous system an increase in that uh, GABAergic activity, and we always talk about how with uh, pain, and especially in the setting of chronic pain, there's that imbalance between excitatory and inhibitory action in the pain pathways. So increasing the GABAergic activity is gonna tip things in the favor of the inhibitory aspect on the uh, pain pathways. And then activating the uh, descending inhibitory neurons. So um, we always bring up the reference of uh, Cymbalta, which I know more and more of us are using for pain. So we know that one of the mechanisms of action of Cymbalta is that it's increasing norepinephrine, uh, which is then going to have a positive effect on that descending inhibitory uh, pathway in the, uh, in the spinal cord. And then we talked about uh, microglial cells and uh, the fact that microglial cells can have this uh, uh, significant uh, neuroinflammation, um, uh, almost a, uh, an immune response that has a significant negative effect on uh, chronic pain. So trying to get that aberrant uh, glial cell activity uh, back to a more normal state um, is, is another mechanism of action of, of neurostimulation. And then having a positive effect on the efferent uh, sympathetic nervous system. Um, and then lastly, uh, having an impact on vasodilatory uh, proteins as well. So that's a review in terms of neurostimulation of the spinal cord itself. Now in terms of uh, peripheral nerve stimulation, uh, of course the initial theories again go back to the concept of, hey, we are stimulating a peripheral nerve, we are stimulating, we're preferentially stimulating the A-beta large, uh, A-beta a a uh, fibers, and as a, as a consequence, we're gonna modulate the, uh, the nociceptive fibers coming, uh, nociceptive input coming from the C fibers, the smaller fibers, the C fibers, and the A-delta fibers. So yeah, so that means we're using bigger nerves to block the signaling patterns of smaller nerves and which the smaller nerves generally send those chronic pain signals. There you go. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and but what's interesting is, and I think both Dr. Hovez and myself, as as we are starting to implement the the use of peripheral nerve stimulation for our patients, but also as we um, uh, become more and more excited about this uh, therapy to have a positive impact on the symptoms and health of our patients. Uh, we always want to understand, you know, whether it's a medication, a procedure, or a minimally invasive surgery, we want to understand why, you know, what exactly is happening in, for our patients and, and why it's having a positive effect. Because the more we, the better we understand the therapy, the better we're going to be able to implement it and we're going to know what processes it's going to be most effective for. So I say all that because Dr. Hovitz and I both uh, spend a lot of time looking at the literature. I think one of the main, in terms of the exact mechanism of action of peripheral nerve stimulation, and of course, like we just said, that what Dr. Hovitz just uh, very well uh, summarized, that concept comes up over and over again in terms of the mechanism of action. Um, uh, but the other thing that was mentioned in, in repetitive uh, papers that I was going through was the idea that it's not limited to that. So similar concept to the, neuro, to the neurostimulation of the spinal cord. Um, that we're not limited to just that uh, gate theory or the stimulation of the A-beta modulating the C-fibers and A-delta fibers, that there, there's a significant uh, uh, impact on what we always talk about in terms of 
the uh, central uh, uh, sensitiz uh, uh, sensitization that can occur, that, that negative impact on the nervous system, um, there's a positive effect on that. And I think we can maybe segue to a couple of the articles we wanted to talk about because I think a good example of that is this uh, study that was done looking at treatment of chronic low back pain. It was a relatively smaller study, but an exciting study because for multiple reasons, which uh, Dr. Hovis and I will talk about, but one of the interesting things that they found was that after they uh, placed the lead um, and they specifically targeted the medial branches um, uh, in the low back, and as, as we know, the medial branches are the, the uh, components, nerves that have a couple of uh, functions. One of the major functions are, is that they uh, pr provide the sensory, the, the painful signals coming from the joints themselves of the low back. But we also know that those uh, nerves also have some motor function as well to the multifidi muscles of the low back. But bottom line is they targeted those nerves, which we know play a critical role in terms of especially um, joint or facet mediated uh, pain in the low back. And what they found is that they put the a peripheral nerve stimulator in place for 30 days, but then after they took the lead out at four month follow-up, those patients were still having a very significant sustained benefit. Um, so that definitely argues towards what we talked about where it's more than just uh, this uh, blocking of the pain signal because you have that uh, sustained benefit. So there's a, there's a positive impact is occurring um, uh, in terms of that centralization of pain uh, that we wor always worry about with our chronic pain patients. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think specifically talking about that cohort of patients, there's an it's it's interesting, right? Because these are the patients that you know, for if all things were you know, perfectly aligned, you have somebody of of the right age with the right symptom pattern, uh, with the right um, medical comorbidities. You know, you might end up doing a radiofrequency ablation on them. But there are a lot of people that don't necessarily fall into kind of the perfect patients for that therapy. Um, but also, you know, what's I think really interesting from this study and from this, the way that they've been following these patients, because they have actually, this was published and they've also released some of the um, uh, early uh, results from uh, continuing on watching those patients is we're starting to see results up to, you know, six, nine, 12 months, which, you know, tends to be what we see when we're actually ablating or burning those nerves. And this is just, using you know modulation to be able to uh, try to affect those nerves and getting a similar result um, which is interesting right I mean we're not we, we're finding a different way that you know maybe in the grand scheme of things what we'll end up thinking about is this as uh, something that's less invasive than going and burning something and taking you know completely ta removing that nerve uh, from and, and you know waiting for it to grow back right if we can actually modulate it and get a similar result or you know who knows but how this will kind of look out as it, as we get a larger studies uh, to look at it, but you know I think that's a very kind of interesting component of this, and plus it, it it'll I think this allows for us to be able to to help other patients that wouldn't fall into that realm of people that we would think we would want to kind of burn those nerves for. Yeah, def definitely, and I think that's where a lot of uh, the excitement comes in terms of this specific. Uh, concept of uh, stimulating the nerves, the, the medial branch nerves of the low back, um, uh, and potentially, obviously, even the cervical spine as well. But, you know, if we have a young patient, uh, I think both Dr. Hovez and I, like when we have a, a patient in their 70s or 80s, where there's really not that much movement going on in the spine to begin with, we have our flexion extension films showing no dynamic instability. 
and we feel very confident that this pain coming from the joints, you know, we feel pretty good about doing the radiofrequency ablation for that, for that patient. But if we have a 30 or 40 year old patient that we've really honed it down to, yes, they have facet mediated pain, but they're not getting relief, uh, long-term relief with the intraarticular procedures, we're definitely a little bit more uh, hesitant or concerned about the idea of uh, cauterizing or ablating that uh, medial branch um, uh, for multiple reasons, including the fact that, you know, like we said, the, that medial branch is not isolated to just its sensory function. It does have some motor uh, uh, innervation, innervation, some efferent activity to the uh, paraspinal muscles. And um, whenever we can have a therapy where we're not uh, destroying something and it's not a medication, I think that's, uh, you know, that's kind of ideal uh, for us because um, uh, with our training and our background and how we approach patients, we always want to be more, um, you know, more focused on things that are building and uh, optimizing. Um, not, you know, uh, I, I think I think radiofrequency ablation um, uh, still is, uh, still will continue to, to have a very important role in the treatment of our, our patients, but the idea, like, like Dr. Harris was saying, for a certain uh, sub-patient uh, sub population especially, the idea of being able to stimulate that nerve and potentially, rather than having a negative impact on the musculature, maybe even have a positive impact on the musculature in addition to these other uh, positive effects in terms of the pain processing that we brought up. That's a really exciting concept. Yeah, yeah, and so, you know, I mean, I think it goes along with what one of the things that we consistently say, the more tools that we have available to us, the more options that we have to present to patients, um, you know, the better off things are gonna be for, for helping these patients in the long run, right? And so I, I think that's exactly the reason why, especially this kind of utility of the treatment. And this is this is something that I think has been um, looked at for quite a while, um, you know, this axial low back component of it. You know, it started when people were doing uh, traditional dorsal column stimulation and getting really good relief of leg pain um, and having some trouble with some of the axial components of the back pain. You know, and so then, you know, there people started to place some leads into, uh, into the low back, maybe not specifically over the medial branches, but generally in those vicinities of where that back pain was was um, difficult for patients uh, and kind of developed that idea of this peripheral field, nerve field stimulation, right? Where you're, you're in the area of the pain, um, you know, and so there was a lot of, uh, I think the early literature for this, this uh, area of neuromodulation, you know, if we go back to the 2003 to 2007 range, was kind of looking at that, almost combo therapy of saying, look, we, we were able to get a lot of good relief for the leg pain. Uh, now this was something that was helpful for some of the axial components of the back pain. Um, you know, as we talked about uh, in the prior uh, episodes, t talking about the dorsal column stimulation, we have gotten much better at targeting the axial components of back pain with dorsal column stimulation. But this does kind of present, okay, well, what if it's somebody that doesn't necessarily, that's just uh, back pain and, and somebody that may or may not have fully be somebody that requires dorsal column stimulation, now we have another another option, right? And options are always gonna be good in terms of being able to you know, treat a wider variety of patients as well as just giving each individual patient uh, different options that have pros and cons that we can explain to them. Um, you know, and so one of the other things that I think we've looked at, you know, we talked about the low back pain, but this idea of some of the uh, mononeuropathies, right? And so, you know, there's, there is good data that shows that if you have a mononeuropathy, so a singular nerve that is causing a lot of pain or dysfunction, that we can place um, some, a lead, an electrical wire in that, vicinity of that nerve relatively close to be able to help 
that nerve specifically. Um, so I know you wanted to kind of touch on a, a, a specific study that you liked, Dr. K, regarding that. Yeah, and I liked it, liked it, you know, because of its design. So, and just as a quick reference, that other study that we had brought up, which we'll include in our little uh, uh, summary at, at the end, we'll have these studies. Show notes. Reference. Show notes. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, for that study we were talking about in terms of stimulating the medial branches, that was by Dr. Gilmore and colleagues, uh, titled "Percutaneous Peripheral Nerve Stimulation for the Treatment of Chronic Low Back Pain Provides Sustained Relief," published in uh, 2019. This last study that we want to bring up before we let you guys go here uh, was a prospective uh, multi-center randomized double-blind uh, partial crossover study looking at the safety and the effectiveness of uh, peripheral nerve stimulation for painful uh, chronic uh, uh, mononeuropathies. And so um, like I said, the, desi the design, and then it was a, a relatively uh, well-powered study as well that initially recruited 147 patients, uh, but after inclusion and exclusion criteria, ultimately 94 patients um, underwent the treatment. And so for the specifics of this study, there was 45 patients that were randomized to the treatment group, and there was 49 patients that were randomized to the control group. And this included both upper limb, lower limb, and uh, trunk. Uh, identified chronic uh, pain due to a peripheral mononeuropathy, and uh, the breakdown was about 30% uh, for, uh, for both the uh, treatment group as well as for the control group. There was about 30% uh, of patients um, had the uh, painful, peripheral, uh, painful peripheral mononeuropathy in the upper limb, about 30% in the lower limb, and about 40% in terms of the uh, trunk itself, just to get a, a sense of the breakdown there. And then this was the study that Dr. Hoves had brought up in terms of when they implanted the device, it was about uh, 7 to 10 centimeters from the identified uh, uh, nerve that they wanted to target uh, utilizing ultrasound to identify that nerve. So <laughs> essentially uh, what um, uh, what this study uh, showed was that what they defined as uh, a successful treatment, which was uh, over 30% improvement in their typical pain, they found that, and the, the, they classified those patients as responders, obviously, they found that there was a significantly higher responder rate in the treatment group versus the control group. So it was a 38% versus a 10% uh, response rate. And then specifically looking at uh, pain reduction, uh, it was about a 27% reduction in pain uh, from baseline to month three compared to a 2%, 2 2.3% reduction in pain in the control group. Um, and they did do a, a crossover as well for the patients that were in the control group who wanted to then undergo the therapy. And for those patients that crossed over, again, about 30% of those patients ended up being uh, responders, uh, similar to the initial um, uh, uh, data. Yeah. And then, in, oh, so sorry, lastly, just real quickly, just to emphasize, what we kind of brought up a couple times uh, in terms of safety, there was no real seri serious adverse events. The major, if you look through the uh, documented adverse event events, it was mostly uh, some soreness at the uh, site as well as some skin irritation, but ultimately those were self-limited and resolved. Yeah, you know, I think this is some encouraging data. Obviously, it, it's early. Um, this is a, a field that even within neuromodulation, which is a young field, is an emerging field of areas that we're looking at. Um, I think you know there are going to be very specific areas where we find that we're going to get a much higher responder rates, right? Because I think the, most people are going to be like, oh, well, overall that responder rate is relatively low, the amount of improvement is relatively low, but this is taking a wide variety of patients that don't have 
you know, similar pathologies and trying to treat them and put, lump them all together. You know, obviously the reason for doing so was to be able to get a, a larger uh, end and try to get a higher, uh, a higher powered study. Um, but I think what we're going to find and what most people are finding is that when you when you take you know case series of specific um, pathologies, we're get, we're ending up seeing much better results than that, right? And so you know just to kind of give everybody a little idea of some of the data that's been published, you know there is a lot of uh, things that have been published looking at um, some headache, trigeminal neuralgia, um, you know which are two areas which you know traditionally with uh, other forms of neuromodulation are, are a little bit more challenging um, that have been published. You know, clinial neuropathy um, being something that I think is uh, being looked at more and more uh, as, uh, as, as a pain generator, especially after somebody who's had uh, back surgery or has had a fusion. Um, and as, as a place that people are utilizing this uh, technology regularly. Um, you know, and so there, there were, we are able to look at these various diagnoses that previously we may not have had the best treatments for right and so adding another tool to the toolbox when patients have failed you know regular medical management when they're not responding uh, either as well or uh, as long to some of the interventional options that we have now we're starting to develop uh, another tool for us to be able to utilize um, in helping um, this patient that's been refractory to everything else that we have um, yeah, and I think that's an important concept. When, yeah, and, and when you hear the numbers of, like, for example, in this study of 38% uh, response rate, I know initially when you hear that number, it may not uh, uh, be that exciting. However, keeping in mind, like Dr. Hovis was discussing, these are patients that have chronic, severe refractory pain that they've tried, you know, pretty much everything under the sun to try to get their symptoms under control. So when you do get about 40% of patients having significant improvement, that's actually fairly exciting for both the patients as well as uh, us as uh, providers. Yeah, yeah, I mean definitely, right? This is, these are, especially in the early studies, these are extremely refractory patients, um, you know, and so as the literature develops, just like with anything else, you know, we're gonna try to find where this actually fits in the treatment algorithm. I'm sure that if we get patients that are not the most refractory of, of the refractory patients and utilize this therapy, probably gonna find that it works better and we have, uh, you know, a, a higher response rate, but also more improvement for those patients and so, um, I think it's really uh, exciting. Uh, it's always fun to add more to the repertoire that we can offer for patients and more ways that we can try to possibly Im positively impact their lives. Uh, you got anything else you want to end with, Dr. K? No, just hope you guys have a good uh, holiday, um, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you next week. Yeah, uh, this may or may not be published before the holidays. We are recording the day before Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's the reason why Dr. Carvelis is saying that. Um, but yes, uh, if you're listening to this uh, at the end of 2019 when we're recording this, happy holidays. If you're listening to this some other times, happy whatever day it is to you. Uh, all right, we'll talk to you guys soon and stay tuned for that legal disclaimer. Now for that legal disclaimer. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.